Also, before I get going, congratulations to all of you that ran yesterday. Very impressive. Right, so uh, as you know, today is uh, the day we celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus is the key event in the Christian faith. In fact, the, the whole truth of Christianity rests on the resurrection of Jesus actually taking place. It's not just a myth. You know what a myth is? A myth is a, a great story that has use to tell us something about life. And so all cultures have myths, and myths are not bad things, but we must just understand what a myth is. The story of the resurrection is not a myth, nor is it a metaphor for new life. It was a historical event and the climactic event of Christ's work on earth. If there was no actual bodily resurrection of Jesus, Christianity is a worthless faith. And the person who tells us that is none other than the Apostle Paul. When he writes to the Corinthians and he's explaining uh, what Christianity is, he says, I'm now going to pass on to others what I've received. In fact, I'm getting ahead of myself. He goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for in this life we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So for Paul, the truth of Christianity depends upon the resurrection of Jesus. You take that away and you have nothing but a dead, renegade rabbi. Paul puts it this way. If there's no resurrection, preaching is a waste of time. Our faith is useless. We are false witnesses. There's no power to overcome sin. And if, in fact, we're living the Christian life, and following Jesus, we of all people in this world are most to be pitied. Strong statements. And so the resurrection of Jesus appeared in all the, the preaching of the gospel that took place in the first century. Here's uh, that classic example from the day of Pentecost. Paul gets up to preach the gospel. Peter does. And what does he focus on? He focuses on the fact that Christ has been resurrected from the dead. He, he refers to it multiple times. God raised him from the dead. It was impossible for death to keep him. God raised this Jesus to life. And we are witnesses of that. Many of the first Christians were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. We today do not have the luxury of being able to see Jesus in the flesh and to know that He is resurrected. We don't have that luxury. So how are we to know that He did rise from the dead? I want to share with you this morning nine reasons, nine pieces of evidence that when you put them all together, I believe make a strong case for believing in the resurrection 
of Jesus. So this is our theme this morning, reasons to believe in the resurrection. And my first reason almost sounds like a non-reason. And it's this, this idea that everybody sincerely believed that Jesus was dead. Everybody believed that Jesus was dead. And the alternative to believing in a literal resurrection is to believe that the disciples made the whole story up. The biblical account shows that that's a highly improbable scenario because everyone believed that Jesus was dead and gone. The dream had ended. The messianic hopes were in tatters. Let me show you from the Scriptures how everybody believed that Jesus was dead. Think of the woman going early on that Sunday morning, which was the first working day of the week, going to embalm Jesus' body with spices. As John said, you don't take spices if you're expecting someone to be resurrected. They were not. Even when they discover that the tomb is empty, they're confused. Hey, where's the body? Who's moved the body? There's no thought in their heads that Jesus is resurrected. We see the same thing with the disciples. When the women go along to tell the disciples, hey, some of us have seen Jesus. The tomb is empty. He's resurrected. The disciples write off what the women have to say as being nonsense. There it is. Their words seemed like nonsense. There was no expectation among the disciples that Jesus was alive. Didn't enter their thinking. Even when they run to the grave, we read in verse 9 that they still didn't understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Jesus had tried to tell them, hey, I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to come back to life. They never got it then, and they didn't have it now. Think, too, of Thomas. Even when all of his closest friends are persuading him, Jesus is risen, Jesus has appeared to us, we've seen Jesus. Thomas has this rational approach. I don't believe it unless I put my hands on the nail piercings and my hand in his side. I will not believe. So you can see from the early disciples that none of them believed that Jesus was alive. There was no expectation for it, and it was not something they would have dreamt up. The second line of evidence I'm calling statement analysis. And if any of you are a policeman or a, an assessor for an assurance company, you'll know all about statement analysis. When something's happened, there's a crime, there's an accident, you send everybody involved into different rooms and you give them a pen and paper and you say in your own words, will you please write down exactly what happened? And people who are skilled in statement analysis can tell you a huge amount about what actually happened when they compare all of these different statements. Because people give things away in a variety of ways. The, the details they choose to include in their statement, not include. The tenses, what they emphasize, tremendously revealing. And the, the different gospel accounts are really witness statements. And so the fact that they actually disagree, 
uh, Nelly said disagree. Uh, the fact that they're all a little bit different actually strengthens the case. This is not a bunch of guys that got together at the local pub and said, what are we going to put in our statement? They, they emphasize different things. They share different details. The, the, the biblical accounts have a ring of truth about them. Let me emphasize one thing. Do you know who they picked in this, who they describe as being the first witnesses? It is a group of women, and Mary Magdalene is, is among them. If you were trying to, in this day, convince the world that Jesus had been risen from the dead and start a new religion, you probably wouldn't choose to make these women the, the star witnesses for the case. It was not right at all, but at that time, a woman's word was not considered to have as much clout as a man's. But here in the biblical accounts, it is, it is a woman who first is told Jesus is the Messiah. It is a woman who anoints Jesus for his burial. And it is a woman who is the first person to technically become a Christian, to be a believer in the resurrection of Jesus. If you were making up the story, which is the alternative to accepting it at face value, they would have picked a, a man, a man of status, someone like Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, he was an insider. They would have made him the star witness. And nor would they have portrayed themselves as such a bunch of losers. Always getting it wrong, never quite twigging on to what Jesus was saying, always coming to the party a little bit late, always struggling to believe and to see and to get it. The, the biblical accounts of the resurrection of Jesus have a, have a ring of truth about them. Then, of course, we have the empty tomb. Jesus wasn't buried in some out-of-the-way field somewhere that all looked like all the other fields, or in some cave or hole in the mountain somewhere. Jesus was, was buried in a very well-known person's tomb, Joseph of, of Arimathea. Here again, he, we read a great detail. It's important detail. He goes to Pilate. He asks for the body of Jesus. And we're told very clearly where the body of Jesus is put. It's not in a vague place that, oh, now where, where do we put the body again? It's very clear which tomb he was in. Again, if the disciples were making up the story of the resurrection, they would never have selected using a member of the Sanhedrin as the burial spot. Nothing was done in a, a hidden way. And when they get to the tomb, it's empty. There's also Jesus' opponents trying to explain away how the tomb is empty, and so all sorts of stories have to get made up. There's the story of, oh, the guards fell asleep. There's the story of the, the disciples came and stole the body away. What's interesting here and what we can take note of is that both the good guys, let's call them the disciples, and the bad guys, the people that want to show that Jesus is dead, they all agree that the tomb is empty. And that's significant. Then we have, fourthly, the, the appearances of Jesus after his crucifixion. 
And this is what I was alluding to earlier when Paul says, let me tell you about the faith that's been handed to me that I'm passing on to others. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Why does he say most of whom are still living? The implication is go and find one of these 500 people and ask them because they were around. Many credible people claim to have seen him on different times, on different occasions. Could, could they have been hallucinating? You know, sometimes people see and hear things. You only need to read Oliver Sacks' book on hallucinations to know how common they are, and these things really do happen, hallucinations. But why, what's the case that they really did see Jesus and didn't just think they'd seen Jesus? Well, they were not predisposed predisposed to believing it. They were emotionally balanced together people, and there were group sightings. It just doesn't match up with people hallucinating. Here are, here's a record of some of those appearances of Jesus. At the tomb, on the Emmaus Road, one Sunday night, the next Sunday night, having a bride in Galilee, going up the mountain in Galilee, back in Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives. Jesus appeared to many people. The tomb was empty. The enemies of Jesus couldn't produce a dead body, a corpse, to show that Christianity was a fraud. I really like this fifth one. The radical change in people is evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. It's actually quite rare for people to change their whole lives on the spur of the moment. And what's more, the happier a person's life, the more fulfilled, the less likely to suddenly change and give it all up for another life. People also tend up to give, give up their miserable lives for a much better life somewhere else. So if I would offer you a five million rand apartment at the waterfront and a steady income to cover every hope of yours and dream, you might accept that offer. Alternatively, if somebody offered you a terrible accommodation somewhere where you definitely don't want to live, you're not going to accept that offer. People always make changes in their lives because it's better for them out of self-interest and there's nothing wrong with pursuing what's best for you long as you don't have to step on other people's heads to get there. But what, how do we understand the change that took place in all of the disciples? Here's the change that took place in James. Jesus was out doing, this is the brother of Jesus, Jesus was out doing ministry one day, and the family's a little bit embarrassed about it, you know. It's like, um, oh, please just excuse our brother, he's, he's really not having a good day today. Uh, come with us, Jesus. Uh, don't worry, he's just out of his mind. So that's recorded for us in Mark chapter 3. That's what Jesus' family members thought of him. 
a couple of screws loose there, brother. Later on, James becomes a follower of Jesus, a servant of Jesus, writes the, the letter of James. How do you explain that change in him? Think about the 11 disciples. Their hopes are dashed, their dreams shattered. Some have gone back to fishing. They're hiding for fear that they're going to be next. Something happens to the disciples, and they are changed. They're empowered, and they go out and turn the world upside down. Why did these disciples change from being timid and fearful and doubting and unbelieving to being bold and living lives that for 10 out of 11 of them resulted in their death, usually by horrible means? You've got to explain the change in these men somehow. It was the resurrection. Then there's, sixthly, the explosion of Christianity into the, the known world. Here we are in the tip of Africa, 2019, worshiping Jesus, celebrating his resurrection. They've come a long way from a tiny little town, Jerusalem, from a from a rabbi. Look how Christianity spread in the first 300 years. And it spread under terrible persecution. It was only when Constantine became kind of sympathetic to Christians that persecution stopped. For 300 years, Christians were persecuted. But look how the church grew. It, it the, the message of the gospel of the resurrected Jesus went into the whole of the known world. And where did it start? In Jerusalem. It's not some weird and wonderful idea that was cooked up somewhere else and then grew here. It was in Jerusalem where people could verify what had happened. That's where Christianity grew. And when persecution came and the Jews were booted out of Jerusalem, the Christians were booted out of Jerusalem, not the Jews, with the Claudian edict, the gospel traveled the world. You have to explain the growth of Christianity some way. I think it makes sense that it's because it was true. Years later, when Paul is giving testimony because he's accused of the crime of being a Christian, and he's standing before King Agrippa giving testimony, probably with his lawyer by his side, he says, I want to speak freely about this. And bottom line, I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. When it came to Christianity, people could say, oh, this is not some secret thing nobody knows about. They could say, what I'm talking about, the resurrection of Christ, there are 500 witnesses out there. All of this happened very publicly, not done in a corner. Then there's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. We cannot underestimate the significance of Saul's conversion. 
He had everything going for him in life. He was a Benjamite. That's like God's favorite tribe. A Heb, because he was Joseph's cute little brother. A Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. Saul of Tarsus, educated at the greatest university of that time. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. That's like being a cabinet minister. He is a big shot. He is a great Pharisee. He is zealous. He's persecuting the church. When the first Christian dies for his faith, Stephen in Acts 7, Saul is looking after everybody's clothes. In Acts 9, when Paul gives his testimony, he's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, locking people up, torturing people. You know how zealous people can be when religion's involved. But Saul became the apostle Paul. And you've got to ask yourself, why would a guy who had everything going for him in this culture and at that time. Give it all up and live a life of being regularly stoned by rocks, whipped, beaten, locked up, shipwrecked for years and years. Why would he give it all up when he had so much for a life? He was persuaded about the resurrection of Christ. Eighth point has to do with the persecution of the church. And for those of us here, myself included, who haven't really studied church history, we don't really understand the extent to which Christians were persecuted. Their heads were used as torches for Nero's garden parties. Have you seen my new light fitting? It's a Christian. People were thrown to the lions as entertainment in the Colosseum. People were sawn in half. Every kind of depraved act of torture was done to Christians. They were regarded as the scum of the earth. They were blamed for any and everything. The fire of Rome. Oh, it's the Christians. Uh, whatever it could be. Christians, Christians, Christians. They were the scum of the earth. Justin Martyr is one of the first Christian apologists and part of the inspiration for calling my firstborn Justin. He said this, he's writing in AD 150. Now it is evident that no one can terrify or subdue us who have believed in Jesus over all the world. For it is plain that though beheaded, crucified, thrown to wild beasts, chains and fire and all other kinds of torture, we do not give up our confession. Instead, the more such things happen, the more others in even larger numbers become faithful. The persecution of Christians is one of the great testimonies to the truth and 
veracity of the gospel. It is true that people will make up stories to get their 15 minutes of fame. They will write books. They will go on TV. But it is extremely unlikely that people will make up stories for the fun of it and then endure torture and be killed for what they know is a lie. It just doesn't happen. Sensible people are only willing to give their lives for the truth. And my final point is this. The church chose to make the death and resurrection front and center in the Christian faith. Jesus did so many things. There were so many good things that the church could have focused on. All of Jesus' great teachings, his vision of the future, fairness and justice on earth, morality that is deep in the heart, a fresh approach to religion and Judaism. The early Christians could have picked up on any one of those themes. But instead, they decided to focus, to put all their eggs in the basket of Jesus' death and resurrection. Why make the death of Jesus the central tenant of the Christian faith if there was no resurrection? Why glory and failure? Why make and celebrate with the greatest gusto the death of your leader. When Paul was asked, well, what do you preach, Paul? What's your gospel? He says, I preach Christ and him crucified. Hmm. That was the message of the church. Why would they make Christ and him crucified? the central tenant of their faith and confession and message if they didn't have to, if there was no resurrection. It's because it was the greatest thing that ever happened. Furthermore, they changed their day of worship to Sunday. Most of the early Christians were all Jews. The Sabbath continued to be the day of rest. Sunday was the first day of the working week, like our Monday. Even though it was much more convenient to get together and worship on the Sabbath, the Christians said, from now on, we're going to make Sunday like our Monday, our day. And why did they do it? Because that was the day of the resurrection. Think about the central way in which people were brought into the Christian faith. Through baptism. What's baptism all about? Your parents wishing you well in church a few months after your birth. In Bible times, baptism was a way in which people could identify themselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul writes, we were buried with him through baptism into death so that we can share in his resurrection. 
And finally, why is Holy Communion as special as it is? Why is Holy Communion the ongoing way and kind of, I don't want to call it a ritual because it's not a ritual. I'm a little lost for words. Let's call it a thing. Why is it the, the ongoing thing that we do to remember Christ? That too is all about Jesus' death. We're celebrating a broken body, shed blood. Who does that kind of thing? Only Christians. And because they believed with all their hearts in the resurrection of Jesus. As I conclude, let me quote Paul's words once again. If Christ has not been raised, preaching is useful. Please don't ever come back to church. Our faith is useless. We are false witnesses. I'm a professional false witness. If Christ has not been raised, verse 17, we are still in our sins. There's no power to overcome sin. And if we are living out the teachings of Jesus and giving him our all, and he's actually dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. Amen. Let's pray, and then I'm going to conclude our service. Is that what you're saying? <laughs>